0: Jesus, We're speaking about you now to you. What a privilege to do that. And we bow because you're high and lifted up. You're the most high God. Speaking to you, we bypass all other authority, including inspectors and governments and all the rest. They're ordained by you, so we show respect. But we're going high above to you, Sovereign God. This, we are your church. That building is yours. It's a vehicle to be used for your glory. Brother Chuck is right. Therefore, there's opposition to it. Please overcome the opposition. And in such a miraculous way, that we wouldn't dare take credit. This new list of demands required of us and with which we will comply, somehow I pray we wouldn't have to. Would you take it and erase it? Would you do something so out of the ordinary it's a result of an extraordinary God? Lord, would you give us the divine surprise confounding our thinking our reasoning and the system which we're constrained to obey i pray instead you would veto what the system has required and put us in that building singing your praises right on time and this we pray in jesus name amen or instead of praying we could Call it instead of Sagemont Church. This is what we could do Sagemont Casino. <laughs> We'd be in yesterday, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> greetings, everybody. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Well, then you have responsibility. So do I. And we're going to read about some of them. They're weighty, but it's not my requirements. It's the masters of all disciples. Uh, We read about it in Luke chapter 17. We'll look at the first 10 verses. If you read those verses quickly, as I did, it looks like a miscellaneous collection of stuff. But if you slow down and look at it a little more carefully, I think you'll see there's a thread linking all 10 verses together. There's a theme to it. The theme is this is what's required of disciples. Two things, faith and forgiveness. We'll take a look. Luke 17, verse 1. He, who is the he? Okay. He said to his disciples, of course those in the immediate Uh, um, uh, atmosphere of his speaking, but by extension, all of us as well. (laughs) He said to his disciples, a disciple, by the way, is is a learner. So a convert is someone, that's a beautiful thing, is someone who has moved from darkness to light, from alienation to reconciliation through the blood of the Lamb. But a disciple is a convert who goes on. (laughs) A, A disciple is someone who's constantly learning from the Master. So the world does not need more Christian converts. It needs more Christian converts moving on to discipleship, because if we don't look differently than anybody else people out there don't think there's much to our faith so he's speaking to disciples and he said it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come do you have a bible that phrases that term stumbling blocks differently offenses both very legitimate in the Greek the word is skandalon what's that sound like that's the word from which we get our word scandal. Here's what it meant originally. Um, you set a trap to catch something in it, and the stick that would be tripped to ensnare, let's say an animal, is called scandalon. When you trip the stick, boom, the trap falls, and someone is inescapably in the clutches of the snare. Scandalon. And the Lord said, That sort of thing, that offense, that stumbling block, scandalous, it's inevitable. It's going to come. You'll see in the context, it's an offense which entices someone to sin. The Lord said, It is inevitable that the world is filled with enticements to sin. Do you agree? My heavens, all over the place. Enticements to sin. That's a scandal. Because God, the creator, is holy. So for the world in which we live to be filled with enticements to sin is scandalous. But the Lord says it's inevitable that that will be the case. Why? Because this is the world. (laughs) And it's filled with people who sin. So he's just being quite realistic. Uh, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But. Woe to him through whom they come. That they come is inevitable. The issue is the source thereof. Be not the source thereof. He's speaking to us, disciples. A disciple is someone who ought to make it easier for someone to believe in the Most High God. But it's possible that the disciple could trip someone up so that it's harder A disciple should be a spiritual help to a non-believer, for sure. But sometimes we're a hindrance. How? Sometimes the way we live. Look, I don't want to step on toes. We're all chickens in this coop. Sometimes we take, you know, this matter of Christian liberty, sometimes I think we miss it. Uh, a matter of Christian liberty mean we're free in many respects. We don't have to legislate our behavior in all respects. M- what movies you go to, how you use your income tax refund, what you keep in your refrigerator, what books you read. You know, we want to be careful about legislating all of those things. They're, we call them matters of Christian liberty. But you can use your freedom in such fashion that it becomes a stumbling block for another. I gave this story, I think, many times in the past, but it's fitting to repeat it again. I was a missionary in Germany many years ago. And in Germany, beer drinking is like water drinking. It just is. In fact, you're not served water in German restaurants. You, You order beer. If you choose to. I was in a restaurant in Germany with three other guys, soldiers. I was ministering to military guys then. I was a missionary. Uh, We ordered food and beer. I ordered beer. It was a cultural thing. It's not Pearland, Texas. It's (laughs) Heidelberg, Germany. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans I'm free to do so. Now, don't get nervous. This was 35-plus years ago. <laughs> it's not yesterday. So I'm just, I just want to tell you. At the end of the meal, one of the four came to me tactfully and privately and said, I wish you didn't do that. And I said, what? He said, order that beer. I said, why? And I was ready to give a defense. It's a matter of Christian liberty. You're free not to drink. You're free to drink. It's not the 11th commandment. You know, this kind of stuff. But I listened, and he said, I'm a new believer. You're my spiritual leader. I'm looking to you for helps and for guidance. I've struggled with alcohol all my adult life. Now I sit in the presence of my spiritual leader, sniffing the aroma of that beer, which is such an enticement to me. He said, you have caused me to stumble. That was the last time, 35 years ago, anything like that ever happened. You see how we can take Christian liberty and use it to cause someone to stumble. So... I offered myself as an example there just to free you up a little bit. (laughs) Be careful. Don't use your freedom in such fashion that it becomes a scandalous stumbling block for someone seeking God. Today we got up on Sunday and came to church. Thank God we were able to. Many of us did not exactly want to. I was tired. I didn't sleep good last night. I worked hard yesterday doing things. The alarm clock went off. Oh, man. What could I tell you? That's the way it is. Glad I came. Glad you came, but I'll tell you why. Though we may have the freedom not to gather together, it's not a matter of the loss of salvation if we don't, you know, we're trying to win the people around us to the Lord and cheapen the experience by not gathering together on the worship day, we've just caused them to stumble. Once you get that in your head, you stop thinking of church as a place where you go to get. You are going to receive because God is good. That's not the goal. The goal is to declare to those around you whose side you're on. You get up in the morning, you get in a car, you go to church. You declare whose side you're on. So that if the Lord is ever gracious enough to give you an opportunity to speak of spiritual truths to a neighbor, they know it must mean something to you. Because while they sleep in to golf or to mow the lawn, you went to church. See how important that is? It's becoming a little more easy for us to stay home because you can watch it on TV. But nobody sees you when you're watching it on TV. They're watching you go to church. You see? So these are subtle ways in which we can cause some. And the Lord is saying to disciples, if you'll be a disciple, it's inevitable that this kind of thing will come, but woe to him through whom they come. In fact, it would be better, verse 2, For him, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Have you ever seen a millstone? They weigh hundreds of pounds. They're used to grind grain or you put olives in it and it's got a big hole in it, you know, and it goes around this trough, squeezes the stuff out of the olives. It's very heavy. It's a very dramatic metaphor if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were tossed into the sea you'd go to the bottom you would drown and the lord is saying it would be better for you for that to happen than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble now folks a woe is pronounced in verse 1 on the one from whom a stumbling block comes we're not told specifically what the woe is it means curse We are told, however, that in comparison to the severity of the curse, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and you drown. So you can imagine, can't you, how severe the woe is if the millstone is a better course of action. You see? If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, when it says little ones, who do you think it refers to? Who said new believers? Brother, I'm glad you got an expensive seat. That is, listen, we think little one, children, and we ought to, but we've limited it to children. That's not the concept. A little one is anyone as vulnerable as a child, like a new believer. There are members of our society who are so vulnerable to influence good or ill that we have to be careful that our influence be good. It could be a little child. It could be a new believer. It could be somebody else, a vulnerable member of society. If you, a disciple, influence such a person for ill, it's better. If a millstone were hung around your neck and you'd be tossed... Into the same. Now, verses 1 and 2 speak about the potential to offend another. But now, verse 3 and on speak about, but what happens when you are the one offended. You see, so it's all linked together, though it looks like it's miscellaneous. It's not. So in the first case, you are the offender. You'll see now in the second case, you're the offendee. With regard to you being the offender, verses 1 and 2 said, don't do it. (laughs) Now, with regard to you receiving offense, let's see what your response as a disciple is to be. Look, verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, if your brother offends, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If you receive an offense of a sinful kind, you become aware, you're privy to a sin on the part of a brother. You have two responsibilities which are very uncomfortable. One is to rebuke that one, and then the second is to forgive, and neither is very attractive. To rebuke means you, the offended party, have a responsibility lovingly. To go to the one who's given the offense, pointing it out, rebuke him, it says, with a view towards reconciliation, repentance, joining hands together again and getting down the road. Wow, who wants to do that? Most of the time, when offended by another Christian, what we do is talk to other Christians about it. And we're real slick. We do this in a very super spiritual way, but it's really gossip. What we do, sometimes we say, I need your advice. I want to know how to deal with a fellow Christian. I suppose I should tell you his name. It'll help you. (laughs) And let me fill you in just a bit over the next three days with regard to what that one has done to me. And when I'm done, I want your input. What should I do? Come on. We just poisoned the water of that person. So sometimes we do that. Sometimes we say, I need you to pray. I suppose I should tell you what. Let me tell you what this person has done to me, and I just want you to pray. Because I only want that person's will. You know, so we do that. Come on. This text says, Narrow the conversations to you and the one who has sinned against you. That's it. Go to that person and rebuke. Angrily, no, we're not permitted. Speak the truth, but in love. What is the goal? To give that person a piece of your mind? No. To get something off your chest? No. The goal is always reconciliation and repentance that is a responsibility we don't do it because we say yeah but what if i offend that person what if that person gets mad too bad this is what the lord said disciples do when wronged you go and point out the wrong then if the person repents of it you have a required response you must forgive two things when you are offended by another brother one is confront it, and two is forgive it if, if the offending party repents. Well, how often are you supposed to put up with this? Verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day, literally seven? No. It's a number of completion. In fact, not only is this limited to seven, in a parallel account in Matthew, when Peter uh, is being spoken to by the Lord, the Lord says, forgive 70 times seven. In other words, how many, of how many sins has the Lord forgiven you? Okay, so you get the point. So if this repentant one who has sinned against you comes to you, Seven times a day and says, I repent, you have to forgive. In other words, there's no end to the number of times you are required to grant forgiveness to the one who is truly repentant of the wrongdoing. So, uh, this is a tough load. Are you kidding me? Yes, Mary. By its own is to turn and go in yeah. Yeah. See, now Mary brings up a great point, and I think she's right on target. Mary said rightly, the word repent means change direction, turn around. If someone really has turned around, they're not going to do this seven times a day. Maybe it is admittedly an extreme uh, illustration to demonstrate to us: you always remain firm in your willingness, readiness, and commitment to forgive, even if it's manifold times, because a person is continues to stumble in the same area. On the other hand, the, the condition here is true repentance. In other words, if you forgive somebody who's not repentant, you did not forgive your overlooking the wrongdoing, which is the opposite of what the, part A says. And enabling, absolutely. So this is a little more uh, tricky than, than you think. It's not just someone who says I'm sorry Later on in the scriptures, it says that person has to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So that's a contingency there. It's simply saying if someone, you've rebuked someone, you've confronted, and that someone is truly repentant of it, you must stand ready to forgive. You can't say, I'll never forgive you. You have hurt me so deeply. You can't do that. That's the main point. just Yes. You didn't just jump into your face and say you better not do it again yes and the repentance it's been, been 35 years yes uh, Jesse is saying in the illustration I gave, I'm just repeating this because it's a little hard to hear, uh, the fellow who rebuked me did so in a very loving manner and I repented and it's been 35, 35 years yes, thank you, the reason I repeated that is that it makes me look good
1: <laughs> what, what you just
0: said So this is important. Yes, sir. (laughs) Well said. Uh, We have a tendency (laughs) to say that the person is not sincere, and that kind of gives us permission to just dismiss the whole thing. Perhaps a little too soon. Yeah, yeah. Well said, Art. No, there's no question. It Gives us the upper hand. It's an. It's here's what we say. That person has robbed me of something. The one thing I won't give up is my uh, arrogance, my disdain, and my anger. Seriously, that's why we're not prone to so easily forgive. Yeah. Yes, sir. Don't you think that's the at the root of it? Pride. Absolutely, pride. So you see the Lord who we serve is saying there's no room for that. You, you have two responses, when wronged. One is to deal with it directly, not through gossip or anything like that. Don't involve, hey, have you ever been hurt by somebody, offended, uh, wronged, and then you tell other people about it? But then you and the person who wronged you get together and you're fine now? But look at all the other people whose waters you have poisoned. You see? That's why we've got to restrict things. To offender and offendee to begin with. Yes, Terry. Yes. Yes. Okay, Terry brings up a good point, and I think you're right. It's talking about believers here. If your brother offends you. But what about the case of... um? Uh, relationship with an with an unsaved person, and there's offense. And so he wants to know, will we be talking about that? I surely hope not. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm not sure actually if we will in the in this in this context because those are different ramifications entirely. You know, when you study scripture, you want to be careful about taking a verse and running with it. You want to bring the sum total of Scripture on the same subject together. We're not actually doing that today. We're only dealing with the issue of forgiveness as given here in Luke Luke chapter 10. And just your questions imply, they're such good ones, that there's more to be said. That's right. The Scriptures say a lot about the subject. Yes, ma'am. So, Ms. Marjorie is saying, uh, based on Psalm 119, verse 165, if we love the Lord, we're not to so easily take offense. No, you did good, and nothing shall, this is wonderful. So, you see, there's a whole lot. You want to bring the whole, all of the scriptures together on the subject, but for now, let's, I want to target just, just the text uh, of, for now. So, uh, here's what happens. Remember, he's speaking to uh, the 12, the disciples. They hear this new bit of kingdom culture from the king, (laughs) and they're saying to themselves, are you kidding me? (laughs) Forgiveness? Why don't you talk to us about revenge? We We know that. That comes naturally. Forgiveness? And going to that creep who offended me? To telling me if I don't want anything, you know, forget it. I'm just having nothing. I have shut the door. No more relay- You know, Lord, what? You? So you know what? So you know what they say? Uh, verse five. The apostle said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." See, so says, says. Remember the context here. They're saying you got to be kidding me. No one could do this stuff. <laughs> If you want us to do this, you're going to have to really, really give us like a super dose of the faith thing, the faith pill. You're going to have to, you're just going to have to do this for us because there's no way, I mean, this is just not, it's not going to happen. Now, you would think the Lord would say, yes, faith is the issue. Not at all. Look what he says in verse 6, rather surprising. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed how big is a mustard seed he's a little dinky thing if you had faith like a mustard seed you would say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you you know what the lord is saying don't give me this baloney about you need more faith you need to exercise the faith you already have you see what's going on there He's saying, you have enough faith to know this about me. I would not require something of you I'm not enabling you to do. Now, let's move on from all this super spiritual. We need more faith. You know what he's saying to him? You're trying to cop out because it doesn't come easy. That's what he's saying. You're going to sit around on a rock until I zap you with some supernatural enablement to do what I require you to do? It's not about more faith. It's about exercise of the faith you have. You see? So yesterday, I was putting out mulch because my wife made me. <laughs> just a, you, know, you too, Chuck? Yeah. <sighs> so we went, you know, we got this stuff, and I'm putting it out, and it's hot, and it's whatever. I'm doing the thing. Because <clears throat> we've got to live with these people, Chuck. And so... Uh, <laughs> So um, so this young couple's walking across the street. They're walking their dog. And the lady says, hey, how are you? I say, hey, how are you? I don't know who they are. And then they go into the house next door to us. They're the new neighbors. Young couple. I'm thinking, gee, I ought to befriend them. But I got mulch stuff. I got to do the mulch thing. Go, therefore, and put mulch around all your stuff. No, you know. No, that's not it. Some's starting to get a little convicted, you know. They're both working people. They moved in a while ago. We don't see them. We're busy. They're busy. Now we see them. They're out there washing their car. They got two dogs. They're dog people. We're dog people. I mean, the, everything is in alignment to go do this. I don't want to. You know, I'm, I'm dirty. I'm bothered. I'm you know, why does my wife make me do stuff like, but anyway, uh, I just don't want to do it. And, but I know ah, I'm like a representative of the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, that's what he saved us to do, serve, represent him. So I prayed, oh, God, would you overcome me in the power of your spirit? Would you send two, possibly three angels? to raise me from the mulch. <laughs> transport me miraculously to the yard next door. <laughs> Fill me with your spirit to such extent that words which emanate from my mouth are not me but you. And then, when it's all finished, return me to the mulch. <laughs> no, I got up <laughs> told my wife let's go say hello to these people and we went and said hello to these people I did not share the full gospel with them you got to start somewhere right what are your names these are our names tell us about your dog oh no again, one dog is Sadie our dog is Sadie we're just talking about stuff and things like that and when it was all said and done I went back to the mulch look at it I did not need more faith. I needed to exercise the faith, the confidence, uh, the respect in the Lord that he already gave me. Just a, just a mustard seed. Act on that. Folks sometime are sitting around waiting for God to zap us with a dose of super spiritual enablement to do the things he's already enabled us to do and we just need to do it, just do it, so he said, You don't need more faith to do this. Act on the faith you have you see you know what he's doing? He's rebuking them, and I know we take this verse out of context all the time and make it a big faith issue. It's actually the opposite of more faith it's you already have a, it's the Lord saying, Don't you have enough confidence in me to know I wouldn't dare require something of you. I'm not going to enable you to do.' In faith, step out and do it, and I will enable you all the rest of the way. Now, to hammer home the point, the Lord says this in verse 7 and on. Get this. Which of you? It's an illustration. Having a slave. Now, wait a second. Is the Lord promoting slavery? Some say, yes, the Bible promotes slavery. This is an illustration. No, 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 no. You know, the Lord Jesus did not come to save us from uh, corrupt societal trends like slavery. He didn't even come to reform governmental systems. Did you know that? He came to seek and to save the lost. And when the lost get redeemed, we do people differently, (laughs) and we do government differently. Everything changes. So he did not come to renovate society. He's going to replace society with kingdom culture. He wants to fulfill society with ones who are like salt and light. He wants to change not systems, but individual members of the systems so that in their transformation, systems will change. So the Lord does not support slavery because one human exploiting another as chattel, as property. is totally contrary to the will of God. Well, then why does the Lord use this illustration? Because it's what the people of the day could relate to because they practice slavery. That the Bible speaks of something does not mean it promotes the same. So if you want to make a case for slavery, you can't do it from this text or any in the Bible. I know you don't, but there's some weirdos out there who do. Charlie? The Romans had 60 million slaves. There was 60 uh, million Romans and 60 ah. Ah. It was part of the society, wasn't it? It wasn't right, but it was part of the fabric. So the Lord, he's a master teacher. He's speaking language they could understand. So here we go. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come, sit down to eat? They're going, (laughs) nobody does that. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Whoa. Uh, the Lord did not mince words. They got the message. You know what he said to them? You're acting like what I'm asking you to do is reserved for the spiritual elite only. For those to whom I have given an extraordinary measure of faith no. I'm asking all disciples to do this. Point out wrongdoing when it occurs to you so that the wrongdoer might repent and the two of you be reconciled. Then I'm telling you when that happens forgive that one as if the offense never occurred. I am requiring that of you and when you do it You should not pat yourselves on the back as if you're something special, and this is extraordinary. In fact, you should simply regard yourself as an unworthy slave. I'm your master. You're only doing that, which I am requiring you to do. If you're a disciple, do it my way. Don't look for brownie points. Don't sit around on a rock until I just so overcome you that it's no longer you obeying. It's some altered state of consciousness. No, I want you to consciously, having confidence in me as Father who knows best, just do what I say. I will enable you to do what I say. I will not require something of you. You're not capable of of stop thinking about it, stop rationalizing it, stop delaying, do what I tell you to do. This is not a matter of faith, it's a matter of obedience. It's a ma- I love the subject of faith in the sense that you wait for some force to be with you, which makes obedience easy. No, obedience is Now and always, an act of the will, you just do it. You just say, not my will, but thy will be done. If this is your will, I have enough faith to believe it's the right thing to do. I'm going to set out in doing it and look to you to bless it and enable me to do it. When you do it, consider yourself no more than an ordinary unworthy slave this is the cost of discipleship that's why i say we the world does not need more christian converts now we welcome this but that's not the need the need is more christians who are disciples of the lord jesus that's a big big difference so there you have it i did a great job <laughs> no. So do you have any questions about, about this? No, oh, we will. Let me mention this one thing and then we'll go. Forgiveness has different aspects. And Terry, this might relate somewhat to what you said. Um, in this case, forgiveness is two-party, bilateral, meaning the offended party becomes aware, the the uh, the, the offending party becomes aware of the offense, repents, and you forgive. Now the two of you are reconciled. In this sense, forgiveness is bilateral. But there's a unilateral aspect to forgiveness, which this text is not addressing, but others do. Like Romans, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. So... so. Uh, or Ephesians, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. Now, that aspect of forgiveness is unilateral. This is what I mean. A wrongdoer may not be seeking your forgiveness. <laughs> A wrong, certain wrongdoers would say, you, you're going to forgive me? I didn't ask for it. Who do you think you are? Yeah, they may laugh at your pain. What's your responsibility then? To forgive. But not in the sense of a bilateral reconciliation. This is now business between you and God where you say, Oh God, I've been hurt deeply by this person. But I know you don't permit revenge. It's not an option. Therefore, out of obedience, I forgive that person. I let that person off my emotional hook. That person doesn't owe me. But, oh, God, that person owes you. I cannot get the person off your hook. I'm going to leave room for you to operate. You hold that person accountable, you see. But I must go free. I can't carry that person emotionally around. It'll sap me of too much energy. See, so that's it's a little difference. That's why the Bible says, as far as you are able, be at peace with all men. Implying in certain cases you're not going to be able. Because it takes two to tango. You see what I mean? Where the other party is repentant, you forgive, you're reconciled, the two of you go down the road together, bilateral. Where the other person is not repentant and has still hurt you, that's where you come before God and you say, that person owes me no debt, but the person owes you. That's a different thing. You see? So that's a bit of a sticky wicket. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that if I believed God I would awake him. That's good. So when I was confronted you know, with this situation and I realized that my hurt was becoming between me and God. Yeah I began to consciously choose to trust God with me. Well, that's good, man. Ask him to take this. And I said I choose to trust you with this. Yeah. Yeah. That is and fifteen minutes later I did it again. And fifteen minutes later yeah. I had to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Kept, you know, but after a time, then it was twenty minutes. Yeah. Then it was an hour. And then it was a day. And then it was just realizing I'm done. Great illustration. It's an ongoing action until we get freedom. Well, and I love what you said. It wasn't between you and the other person. You didn't want anything between you and God. That was good, Mary. Not bad. For a woman, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. We always have to end on with truth. Okay. So um I'll give you something else to work on, Mary. <laughs> um, so let's pray. Good, Charlie, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Uh, yeah 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 well said isn't that good just get in on it that is right that is right well Lord Jesus uh, thank you for saving us from sin and also from sinful ways our lifestyle that's called sanctification to be made holy like you and uh, the way we live it it well it just plays out in interpersonal relations that's That's where the work of discipleship really, really takes place to respond to people the way you want us to, to other people the way you want us to. Uh, We don't want to do what comes naturally. You're asking us to play by different rules. We can do it because you've asked us to do so. Just put it in us to obey, to do things your way, knowing Father knows best. Thank you for your interest in shaping us up to be more like you. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you folks. See you next time.